0: at some point we did watch the second plane hit, hit tower two. And, uh, I just remember thinking to myself, like, I think, I think dad is around there somewhere. I think something is very wrong there. And we are in uh, a lot of trouble right now.
1: On September 11th, 2001, The world watched on live television as the twin towers of the World Trade Center burned and collapsed. The first plane, American Airlines Flight 11, crashed into the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, which was 5.46 a.m. in Arizona.
2: And we have unconfirmed reports this morning
1: that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. While New York was undergoing a terrorist attack, Matt and Rachel York were eagerly awaiting the arrival of their baby girl. And all the doctors and nurses were
2: like watching the TV because obviously something crazy had happened. And my dad had to intervene and be
1: like, hey, can we turn off the TV? My wife is in labor. Meanwhile, David Lucier woke up, got ready for work, and made his way into the office in Metro Phoenix. He learned something had happened in New York after hearing radio reports. When he arrived at the office, his colleagues were glued to the TV watching the events unfold.
3: I'm thinking, it just planes just don't accidentally fly into the World Trade Center. They just don't.
1: NFL player Jeremy Stott didn't learn about the attacks until a friend called him, asking him if he was watching the news.
4: And I just remember turning on the TV going, what in the hell is going, this is America. We don't get attacked here.
1: Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Many of us can remember exactly where we were when the Twin Towers fell. Some weren't old enough to create memories of that day, but recognize its significance. And for others, it changed the trajectory of their life. In today's episode, we're speaking with four people, all of whom represent a different generation that were impacted directly and indirectly by that day. Um, So they had to turn it
2: off so they didn't see the rest of the footage. Um, And then I was born at about 920.
1: Mackenzie York's parents arrived at the hospital on the night of September 10th. For them, the next day would be the birthday of their baby girl. For the rest of the country, it was a day of shock, terror, sadness, and disbelief. Although the focus was on Mackenzie and mom, they knew something had happened. They definitely knew what was happening because the hospital went in lockdown.
2: So even though my mom was fine, I was fine. We had to stay in the hospital longer just because
1: the whole country kind of stopped for a second. Every birthday moving forward for Mackenzie, it would be marked by the remembrance of those killed in the 9/11 attacks. On her first birthday, she was profiled by a newspaper, and on her fifth, her parents sat her down and explained the significance of the date for everyone else.
2: Yeah, it definitely was heavy. Um as much as a 5-year-old could feel heavy, I think I thought of just all those people and all those families cuz I would be sad if I lost someone I cared about and just to think that there were thousands that did. I definitely recognize that.
1: Although it was heavy, it's something she's carried with her for the past nearly 20 years. She's made space in her life to reflect on the victims. She never spends a birthday without acknowledging the attacks.
2: We definitely pray for those families every year on my birthday and just recognize these people suffered a terrible loss and that's heartbreaking so we acknowledge it before we do anything
1: big. Mackenzie spent some of her birthdays volunteering with Feed My Starving Children. It's some of her favorite birthday memories. Giving back to the community has been a driving force for her.
2: And that was so sweet because we would get this big crowd of people and we would just get to serve others. And I think just that period of time is so sweet because we got to kind of give back to those who are in need and that's just a fun way to
1: celebrate because it's not celebrating me, but it's just a chance to serve. She said people her age are so used to watching tragedy play out on TV and on social media that they've in some ways become numb to it. And while many of her peers see the significance of 9-11, the impact of that day for Mackenzie is a weight few will ever know. It becomes more like something you would read in a history book. Not to diminish it, but
2: if you're not there to experience it, it's hard to feel that weight or anything. I think I have a unique opportunity to appreciate what happened solely because it's the day that I was born. And I'm thankful for that because I get to care more about the families and take extra time to recognize it.
1: Mackenzie's studying secondary education at Arizona State University and hopes to become a high school teacher at a title one school teaching English. She said her passion for teaching is fueled by her love for people and the need to care for them. She wants to be that support system for kids who don't have an adult to look out for them.
2: And teaching, aside from the fact that we need education, um, teaching is a great opportunity to care for students that need care, to push them to be the best that they can be and help them know that they're valued and loved. So when I think of 9-11, I think of the families and the victims. So I guess that care for people kind of seeps into what I want to do.
1: She hopes 20 years later, people take a moment to reflect and remember what happened that day.
2: I think it would be sad if we just kind of brushed over it and that they would, I think, like I said earlier, recognize how we don't know how much time we have. No one does. And to live intentionally and to care for others while in that amount of time, it's pretty important.
1: In a few days, Mackenzie will turn 20, and if all goes well, a bright future ahead of her. But when David Lucier was the same age, his future was uncertain. He was preparing to fight in the Vietnam War. Growing up with multiple family veteran members, David saw joining the armed forces as his opportunity to give service. In 1966, fresh out of high school, he joined the Army to become a Green Beret.
3: And so I uh, enlisted in the Army, uh, ripe old age of 19, and um, did a year and a half of training, two years of training almost, and then a year in Vietnam.
1: He served as a medic in the Special Forces and fought against the Northern Vietnam Army. On David's 21st birthday, he trained and led a private army of indigenous minorities on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Vietnam. But he missed home and his family, so in December of 1969, He left the army and came home.
3: Uh, And so when that was over, that was, it was really over. I left, I left Vietnam and 36 hours later, I was out of the army and on my way home. Um, It was uh, very, so that was very, very abrupt. And uh, I always, I, I felt guilty about leaving. Like I was abandoning them.
1: The war would continue for another five years. David moved to Arizona where he attended ASU Graduated and went into telecommunications finance. Fast forward to 2001, as David watched the aftermath of the attacks unfold, he thought to himself, oh man, this isn't good.
3: A lot of memories there. Um, You know, a lot of PTS floats to the top when you get to things like this. And, um, you know, it really makes me start thinking, and you start thinking terrible things, and you start thinking anger and revenge, and, you know, um, how can I get back into Well, I quit my job. I just thought, well, I, this, this kind of puts everything in perspective.
1: Then, a couple of years later in 2003, he got a phone call from a friend. His friend told him he had a job for him if he wanted it. It didn't take much for David to make a decision. He said, when, where, and how much? The friend told him, in two weeks, Iraq. His motivation to go back was in part because of the September 11 attacks and the regret he felt leaving the Army early in 1969.
3: And so we protected those, uh, the, the, the people inside that, 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 all the Americans inside that compound were our responsibility to stay, keep them safe.
1: They acted as private contracted security for both American armed forces and Iraqi civilians. For David, it was like making up for his early departure from Vietnam. It was his chance to once again serve his country. It wasn't easy. In fact, it was dangerous many times. He recalled one of his most memorable missions when they took Iraqi civilian workers to the voting polls.
3: We took people and protected them at the point of a gun, and we killed people to get them to the voting poll so that they could vote that was a voluntary mission on the part of every American there and every American volunteered. Uh, nobody, nobody stood down. Uh, and we, we, uh, uh, loaded everybody up, got all our guns headed out. And it was, it was a long haul to the, to the pole. Cause we, we lived kind of in the hinterland. And so, uh, that, was probably the most important mission I felt, uh, because this was something that was really impactful. People got to vote in a free and fair election.
1: Upon returning stateside, he got more involved in local veteran affairs. Currently, he's the president of the Arizona Veterans Military Leadership Alliance. That's a nonprofit that's focused on veterans advocacy. David was just one of many who felt the call to serve in the armed forces after 9-11. One of those most notable was Pat Tillman, a former ASU and Cardinals football player. Jeremy Stott first met Pat when he joined the ASU football team. Their friendship began the first day of Jeremy's team practice, soon after Pat made his entrance into the team's locker room. Jeremy and Pat remained friends during their two years at the university. When they both prepared to join the NFL, Jeremy encouraged his agent, Frank Bauer, to sign Pat. ASU graduate student, Emily Carmen, on behalf of Cronkite News, conducted an interview with Pat's former ASU teammate.
4: Oh, there's, there's this triangle that was always in effect where we were trying to keep each other in line. And so it was kind of like, I mean, that brotherly love that we had for one another. And then Frank comes in and of course he's, you know, he's kind of dad and he's kind of trying to push us around and tell us where to go and how to navigate the NFL.
1: The two men were three years into their NFL careers when 9-11 happened. Jeremy was at a standstill in his career. He'd just been released from the Seattle Seahawks and didn't know what his next move was going to be.
4: That's when Pat, you know, called me and said, hey, what are you doing? Frank says you've had workouts and you're turning these workouts down with these other teams. Why aren't you going to these teams and working out? I said, you know, Pat, I'm kind of over the NFL right now. 9-11 happened, I want to go and and serve like my father and my grandfather did.
1: Pat talked him out of enlisting because he had one year left before gaining access to his retirement benefits from the NFL. Jeremy would go on to join the Oakland Raiders. Meanwhile, Pat sat on a $3.6 million contract from the Arizona Cardinals. Their agent didn't know if Pat planned on accepting the contract and asked Jeremy to check in on him.
4: And he just said, well, I've got some other... Our, you know, I got some other plans, you know, we'll, we'll, let's not talk about that right now, it's my wedding. Okay, no big deal. And so that was all we really talked about as far as him joining the service, but I think it, all, it went back to that conversation, that two-hour conversation that we had when, when I promised to go back in the NFL, we had talked about military service, and he had said the same thing, and I said, well, we really haven't done anything.
1: Pat joined the Army in July 2002 in light of the 9-11 attacks. It came as a surprise to Jeremy, as it did to many football fans who expected to see him back on the field the next season. Although Pat joined the Army, he and Jeremy kept in close contact. Jeremy, who'd wanted to join earlier, had dozens of questions for Pat about his life in the armed forces.
4: And I still remember I was in St. Louis, right outside of a restaurant, talking to Pat about it and just saying, you know, tell me about it, what's going on, how's, you know, boot camp?" And he, didn't, he, didn't have, he never really had anything bad to say about the service.
1: Jeremy played the 2003 season with the St. Louis Rams, but would never see the sidelines of the NFL again. He joined the Los Angeles Avengers in the Arena Football League in 2004. On the morning of April 23rd, 2004, Jeremy got a call that would change the trajectory of his life. In the middle of practice, he walked over to his cell phone and noticed he had missed nine phone calls. At the same moment, he received another call. Confused, he answered the call, and on the other line, he heard his mother crying.
4: Why are you, what's going on? It's all over the news, Patty's been killed. And I said, Pat, what are you talking about? Pat's not dead. No, Patty's been killed. And at that point, I mean, it was just kind of like, no, Pat can't die.
1: He continued with practice, but overwhelmed with the news, he threw his helmet off and his shoulder pads told off his coach and walked off the field. It was a pivotal moment for him. It's when he decided to leave professional sports. He'd already made the decision to enlist. However, his physical injuries made him hold off. On May 29th, the Army acknowledged Pat's death was, quote, probably due to friendly fire. It wasn't until a year later that the Army would officially apologize to the Tillman family for the delay in telling the family the true nature of his death. Jeremy remembers sitting in his car at a car wash when he heard the truth about Pat's death. It was a devastating moment for him.
4: And the news breaks that Pat wasn't killed chasing, you know, these bad guys up the mountain and in a firefight, he was actually killed by friendly fire. And knowing that the story was fabricated, I mean, that really Hurt, you know, I'm like this is because you look at the the leaders of this country and you think that they're going to have integrity, they're going to have honor, and they're going to have all these things that we look at our in, in our leadership and come to find out that they fabricated that story. But my friend, it was really a tough pill to swallow.
1: Pat's death and the end of his football career weighed heavy on Jeremy. He found himself drinking more. But soon after he reconnected with his religion. That reconnection with God pushed him to serve other people and enlist in the Marines.
4: I think it took less than about 24 hours for them to figure out the connection between Pat and I. Um, it was all over the base. Um, you know, every day I'd come out and try to go through a drill and go to the chow hall and you could hear whispers and points and fingers. And
1: Although he experienced what he called a bit of hazing, he looks back at his time in the Marines fondly.
4: I actually hold my head higher being a Marine than I do an NFL football player. Um, To me, just that was probably the best choice of my life was to serve in the Marine Corps and learning to humble myself and to learn really how to serve others.
1: Jeremy works as a welding instructor in Bakersfield College in California. He's noticed younger generations are forgetting the 9-11 anniversary.
4: You know, as a society, we just move on past it and new generations come up. And so for... Pat and I, I know we both want the world to remember the victims of 9-11.
1: One of those victims was Gary Bird, an employee of Marsh McLannan. Gary was always traveling for work. So the day he left home in Tempe, his son Andrew thought nothing of it.
0: I was sitting on this ugly green couch in the furthest room in our house. You know, just, uh, I I think it was a Sunday or Monday morning when he was taking off. But he came in there and he patted my head. And he said, I love you, son. I'll be back uh, Tuesday night, you know? And I said, all right, dad, no big deal. Cool, you know, love you, see you later. You know, Um, thinking nothing, nothing of it.
1: Andrew was close to his father. He thought of him as the perfect example of a man and father. Andrew described his father as a cowboy whose passion was riding horses and taking care of his home. When Andrew was old enough to mount a horse, it became their routine to ride every Sunday morning. Andrew recalls one particular morning when he was seven years old. He and his dad were riding calmly together until something spooked his horse, Poco. It took off running at full speed with Andrew still in the saddle, and Andrew held on for dear life.
0: Just when I think that this isn't gonna end, I look to my left and my pops is legitimately John Wayne style, riding his horse like like this, right? And just like holding his hat and just galloping next to me and he looks over at me and he reaches out with his right hand and he grabs the reins and he just jerks him back and this horse comes to a complete stop. And I remember looking over at this man and I'm just like, wow. It's almost like he was glowing, you know what I mean? Like the sunlight was just right on his face. I was like, wow, look at this man. Just amazing, you know, like a superhero.
1: To Andrew, his father was a hero. To many others, Gary was remembered as a nice and caring man. Then, on the morning of September 11th, Andrew had a realization that something bad had happened. After watching the news with his mother and sister, he got ready for school. The whole day was a blur for him. At the end of the day, he came home to a packed house of family members. Gary was in New York for a meeting the meeting took place on the 100th floor in the North Tower. Although his death was set in stone soon after the first plane hit at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, it took years for Andrew to accept it.
0: I still wholeheartedly and fully and genuinely believed that he would walk through the front door and act as if nothing happened right before dinner, right? 6 p.m. There he is. Dinner's, Dinner's nice and hot up until I was about 16 years old. So that was my knowing, right? At 16, knowing like, okay, he's not coming back.
1: Soon after Gary's death, 13-year-old Andrew discovered drugs and alcohol. He began using and drinking for the next 10 years. It was a form of coping with the loss of his father. He had shut down all of his emotions.
0: I was cold. I was... um reserved, I was isolated, especially in that realm. And for me, drinking and using was the perfect way to run away from that.
1: Every year on the anniversary of his dad's death, he would hide from the media. The probing nature of the annual questions got under his skin. Meanwhile, his mother Donna was an open book. So much so, she wrote one and released it on the 10 year anniversary. She held a signing for the book and made sure Andrew would be there. It was important for her to have him there. On the morning of the signing, Andrew's roommate burst into his room, telling him, "'Wake up, we gotta go to the signing, I'll drive you.' Andrew hung over, reluctantly got up. It was the first time in a long time. Andrew had gone more than an hour without drinking in the morning. But that morning would be a turning point for him.
0: Uh, and I remember looking over to my mom and she was just happily signing away, just genuinely. The look on her face was of love and uh, compassion for people that were coming in and genuinely were interested in her story, right? And I remember seeing her face and, and she was so comfortable with this at this point. And she had found so much peace and so much healing with this at this point. And I remember seeing that and saying to myself, like, what have I been missing out on? You know, I've spent 10 years avoiding this for selfish reasons, and I could have spent that time growing closer to my mother, to my sister, and being able to tell a story like she's doing. You know, this is kind of a big deal. I'm kind of in a unique position to help. And that was nine days before I got sober."
1: After that, he spoke out more, acknowledged his grief, and moved forward. He also dedicates his free time working with nonprofit organizations that help addicts and alcoholics get back on their feet. On this 20th anniversary, he plans to be with his mom and sister Amanda in California. Andrew hopes people take a moment and reflect on how people came together as a country in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks.
0: Hard times make good men good women. So I think that if we, if we look through that lens, if we look through the lens of, of how we were staying connected and staying cooperative and uh, standing up with each other 20 years ago, and we look at today through that lens and we ask ourselves, what were we doing then that we aren't doing now? And what can we do today to get over these little things that are dividing us so heavily and start to do those things and, and start to understand each other and have compassion for each other.
1: That's it for today, Valley 101 listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode. If you've got more questions about the Valley, make sure to submit them to our team at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you are a regular listener to our show, please consider supporting it by subscribing to azcentral.com. As a courtesy note, audio in today's episode came from CNN and Cronkite News. And as always, thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and easycentral.com. Also, if you're a fan of Arizona politics, be sure to check out The Gaggle, our sister podcast that breaks down local issues and helps you keep up with the state's political news. See you next week.